Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from translational development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner. And I'm Ramin Farhood. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward. Welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Biotech Leader. We're so excited today to welcome Scott Zhao, who's the CEO and founder of Luminopia, a VR company who is looking to treat neurovisual disorders through a really innovative modality and platform. Scott, really excited to have you on the show today. Um, I know we're going to be talking a lot about really addressing a true unmet need in the market, operating a really hyper-efficient organization and what that means as you're starting to grow and scale a really small organization and hoping to scale from there. Um, and then really thinking about what does it take to, to leapfrog technologies in the market and do something really pioneering in the space um, and, and hear a little bit more about your personal journey and, and what it took for you to decide to, to jump right in. So excited to have you here and welcome to the show. Great. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So to get us started, we'd love to hear maybe a little bit more about your story and, and motivation for starting the organization. I, I think one of the most fascinating things in our prior conversations have always been around the true unmet need that you identified. And I think how you even came about that and what you decided to do about that is a fascinating discussion. So if we could maybe start there, that'd be great. Yeah, for sure. So I started Luminopia about six years ago. I was doing my undergrad at Harvard at the time, was in the middle of freshman year. I'd always been interested in the intersection of healthcare and technology. And for me, it was about figuring out what lens to take to that area and came across the problem of amblyopia, which a lot of people know better as lazy eye, through a friend of mine, uh, freshman year, who grew up with the condition and started telling us about his experience with the condition and with existing treatments for the condition. So that sparked our curiosity. We started doing a lot of our own research into the disease. Uh, what are the options today? What's the latest research that's being done to create a, a better treatment? And we found that there wasn't a lot of innovation happening in this space. So despite amblyopia being the leading cause of vision loss in children and young adults, affecting about 3% of this population, the standard of care treatment is an eye patch. And that's been around for decades, if not centuries. Uh, we're talking mostly young kids, so you can imagine how compliance can be a really big challenge. Uh, it's a big burden for the patients, for the parents, for the whole family. And even in patients who are compliant, a lot of these kids are still left with a significant vision deficit. So as we started learning these things, we realized, wow, there's really an unmet need here. And we started doing our own research and our own brainstorming. How can we create a better treatment? And we realized that this was an area where technology could uh, enable us to create a whole new modality for treatment that wasn't possible before. A lot of amblyopia treatment comes down to uh, presenting a different image to each eye because what you're trying to do is you're overcoming the suppression that's happening in the visual cortex. So if you take a patient with the condition, they will have a stronger eye and a weaker eye, and they'll actually just ignore the input from the weaker eye. And that's why the vision in that eye degrades over time. So we're trying to overcome that suppression. We're trying to get the eyes to work together properly. And that requires us to present images differently to each eye. So as we started thinking about this, we realized virtual reality 
is actually the perfect platform to deliver amblyopia treatment because you have a lens for each eye, you have a screen for each eye, you can present whatever you want to each eye in a targeted and immersive manner. That's how this all started. That's how we got into this. And that's where the idea for Luminopia came about. And maybe just to summarize this, just to get it completely clear, you were a freshman in college recognizing this massive problem. And you said, yeah, let's create a whole new modality about it. And I'm going to figure out how to do it. I'm going to drop out and focus on building this thing to completely disrupt a market that to your point, 30, 40 years, there's been literally zero innovation. So when we think about healthcare, we're usually thinking about stepwise small improvements. Here you're talking about a massive leapfrog effect and you are ready and willing to go all in on this idea. How did you decide that you had to do it here now? And and frankly, that you were ready to take this on um, with your partners at the time, knowing that you know, you were new to the space. You're young and hungry, which is great. But but how did you decide to do that? Yeah, well, I didn't know what I was getting myself into, to be honest. So uh, looking back, it's it's been a, it's been an incredible adventure. And it certainly hasn't been a, a straight path. But for me, it was a it was a simple decision. I knew that I had always wanted to do something at the intersection of healthcare and technology. And this was one of those rare areas where the benefit of technology is so clear uh, that you actually 10 years ago couldn't do what you could do now. And one of our mantras going into this whole endeavor was we can't take a technology and go out looking for a problem to tackle. You're you're never going to be successful with that approach. So it was more about, hey, we realize that there's an unmet need in this very prevalent condition. We realize that technology, specifically VR, can actually have an impact and let's go out there and build something to make a better treatment. And I would say the moment where we really knew we were onto something was we had created an initial prototype. We wanted to speak to some key opinion leaders in the space and understand their perspective on this issue. Sent a cold email to David Hunter, who's the chief of ophthalmology at Boston Children's. He was kind enough to take the meeting and spent a whole hour with us. And he was the one that really said, look, you're onto something that's a really significant challenge for him as a physician, for the patients and the parents that he sees on a daily basis. And if we can actually take this idea, turn it into a real company, turn it into an approved product, then that can have tremendous impact on a ton of patients across the country. So that's when we said to ourselves, well, maybe we are onto something. Maybe this is something we should take seriously and actually uh, dedicate ourselves to. And Scott, uh, talking about the clinical trials, uh, and I know that uh, you were able to generate robust clinical data based on multiple sites, which I think one of them, including your phase three study that that granted you the approval from the FDA a year and a half ago or so, uh, over a couple of hundred patients, uh, you know, 23 sites. How were you able to pull that off? What were some of the challenges that, that you went through? Not, not having any background in, in clinical trials. Obviously, I mean, I know you had advisors and you had to work with them, but what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome and some of the lessons learned uh, in digital therapeutics? Yeah, well, we've had a great team. We've had a small but mighty team. We've been able to bring together a group of people that have done this before, whether it's running those uh, trials for FDA approval, whether it's 
figuring out a regulatory pathway for a product that really doesn't have precedent. So a lot of that credit goes to the team that's been with us for, for many years. Uh, you know, I remember the first time that I met who uh, the person that later became our head of clinical, we were talking about our first feasibility study. And I was saying, ah, we're kicking this off next week. And he was saying, well, do you have this, this and that? And you have this and that. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I was like, yeah, we've got all those things. We've got it under control. Eventually ended up hiring him and uh, he ran our phase three trial on a, on a very lean and efficient budget. So, so we've had a great team, but I would say a couple of things stand out from, from our experience. Uh, going into it, we knew instinctually that in order for this technology to have an impact on patients, we needed the physician to be intimately involved in that process because the pediatric ophthalmologists, the optometrists are the ones that are driving practice and driving management of the condition. And in our initial conversations with the FDA, it also became clear right away that anything that related to amblyopia treatment, improving vision, that would fall under their purview. This isn't behavioral health where there's a bit more of a, a, a gray area. The FDA has put out some guidance and saying, you know, some wellness apps, they're not going to regulate. We were in a clearly regulated space. So we knew that this was the path we had to take. We had to treat it as a traditional therapeutic. We had to gather the same level of evidence that you would expect of a new drug or a new device or, or, or what have you. So we went, to it, we went into it with that mindset. A couple of things that really stood out along the way. The first is when you're working on something that really has an unmet need, it's a lot easier to run trials across the board, right? So getting sites on board wasn't really a challenge for us. Once we got in the door with the head of ophthalmology at Boston Children's, another one of our early advisors was the chair of pediatric ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins. And it's such a small community that we're working with. There's only about 1,200 pediatric ophthalmologists. Everyone knows everyone. So once we were talking to some of the key opinion leaders in this space, it would be, oh, you know, you should work with... Uh, one of my colleagues, or you should work with a friend of mine, you know, down in Houston or, or in California, and they should be one of your sites as well. So we were able to build out this network of sites pretty easily. And the other thing that we found was that, um, that the expectations that these sites had for compensation during the trial, for time spent, you know, they were really willing to go the extra mile to make sure that their patients could have access to this treatment in the trial. So we found a lot of amazing collaborators through that. We were able to run the trial quickly and efficiently, uh, do it with a very lean budget and get the evidence that we needed for approval. That's, that's remarkable. And to build on that, you've done that even beyond your clinical trial. And I know, Scott, you and I were joking about this a little bit. You've been a five-person team. Now I think a, a six-person team up through commercialization. Now you've been in market for some time now and you're working on on scaling the business around the amblyopia product, how have you maintained that hyper-efficiency even as you start to scale and grow in a commercialized setting? Yeah, so I think a lot of it comes down to uh, figuring out which areas of the business we want to learn from and in some ways copy best practices from existing industries and which areas of the business we think we can do things differently. And that's a really tricky question, I think, to find the right balance. We knew that we needed to go through the same uh, level of rigor when it came to clinical development as a traditional biopharma company. But 
because of the space we're in, because of how the technology works, the fact that it's safe and doesn't have a lot of, doesn't have any serious adverse events, doesn't have a lot of adverse events, uh, we could be a lot more efficient with, for instance, how we ran the trial. And this isn't a space where there's three or four approved uh, drugs already. There's an incumbent uh, company spending a lot of money running existing trials. This was a space that was, again, new to innovation. So we we're able to do things a little differently while still achieving the same end goal. And we've taken that same mindset to commercialization. Um, we've had a lot of discussions internally. Are we launching this technology more like a tech company? scaling, iterating, you know, doing it in a stepwise manner, or are we launching this comp- this product more like a pharmaceutical company? And the, the answer is it's a bit of both. In terms of the work that we're doing, we're calling on physicians, we're engaging key opinion leaders, uh, we're uh, disseminating the results of our trials and making sure that everyone understands the evidence. We're doing all of that in a pharma mold but we are doing it in a stepwise manner as well because we're making sure that the product can get out there. We can learn from the first five sites, the first 10 sites, the first 100 prescribers. We can figure out what's working well, what we need to tweak, and then scale as we go. And, and Scott, to that, to that point, how did you decide, how did you prioritize the unmet need? Because obviously, lemopibia uh, is not just for children. And and there's a huge market there. How did you how did you decide just to focus on that patient population? Yeah, so we started with young kids. We're approved in four to seven year olds for amblyopia right now. And the reason for that is we felt that people would be most eager to adopt a new technology in that age group. A lot of these kids are going through patching, have been through patching, or maybe are about to start patching and are eager to try out another treatment option. And physicians are seeing the most patients in this age group. So when we thought about what would be the best early adopter population, that was the age group that made the most sense to us. Now, one thing we've seen is in our pilot studies, we saw efficacy in kids as old as 12. And we actually looked at a subgroup analysis comparing the efficacy in four to seven-year-olds versus eight to 12-year-olds, and there was no age effect on treatment response. So we're really encouraged by that. With traditional treatments, you see declining efficacy as kids get older. We've yet to see that with our treatment modality. And we think that part of the reason for that is we're actually taking a different mechanism compared to existing treatments. So patching, as well as atropine drops, which is another standard of care option, uh, they're just blocking or blurring the stronger eye completely not actually allowing the brain to take input from both eyes and actually fuse that input together to get uh, the full image. Whereas we're taking more of a binocular approach where we are penalizing the stronger eye, but the patients still get part of the TV show, the movie through uh, each of their eyes. So they actually have to piece together the puzzle pieces to get the full video. And that's why it's a more binocular approach. And that's what we attribute this efficacy in older kids too is the fact that we're taking a different approach. So that's part of our next step is to expand our label into the 8 to 12 year old age group and then potentially beyond that into teens and adults. There's a huge unmet need in that population as well. In some ways it's even greater than the unmet need in kids because 
there are no existing treatments. Patching atropine, these treatments don't work in teens and adults. So if we can see some efficacy in that age group, uh, there's millions of patients out there in the U.S. alone that have a significant vision deficit that could benefit. Scott, when we think about bringing new therapies or assets to market, you know, I, f- I personally love to bring up your story because I, I think you have such a unique and perfect circumstance of a highly, highly motivated patient population, highly motivated physicians who have been asking for something better, but haven't been offered really anything in decades. You have a great option that you know works, and it's really about offering these things in the right setting. And you know, I know it's not this easy, but it almost sells itself in some circumstances because it, it is such a clear and obvious story of why wouldn't I try it? It's very safe. We've shown it's effective. We don't have great alternatives. But the question for you as a founder, and I know you're you're thinking about what comes next and scaling your business and going through financing and, and building from here. What do you do next after Amblyopia? How do you think about the growth of the company and the platform when you might not have as ideal circumstances looking at other therapeutic targets? Yeah, so... I won't say that we had this all planned out because uh, when when I started, it was just a crazy idea that we were excited about, but it ended up working out really well where we're trying to create a new class of medicines with just digital therapeutics or with prescription digital therapeutics. And it's never easy when you're trying to create a new class. And if you can start in an indication that gives you a lot of the benefits, Kim, that, that you mentioned, then you're going to be better off for it. Uh, we're optimistic that once more of these technologies get out there and once we hopefully can show a success story within Amblyopia, then a lot of the questions that people have around, oh, how do these technologies work and how do they get implemented? How do they get paid for and reimbursed? We'll hopefully be able to answer a lot of those within a friendlier environment, if you will, within Amblyopia, where the unmet need is so clear, the prescriber base is well-defined. Um, just a simpler environment overall. So we do have a lot of exciting ideas about what comes next, both within Amblyopia, expanding that age range, as I mentioned, but also targeting other indications that are at the intersection of vision loss and neurological deficits, because fundamentally that's what we're doing with Amblyopia. We're not addressing any structural issues with the eye. We are retraining the brain to see through both eyes as opposed to just the stronger eye. And there's a number of other indications that have a similar kind of characteristic. So strabismus is another one in kids. Uh, That's looking at the actual misalignment of the eyes and the ocular motor feedback loop, essentially where is the brain telling your eyes to look and whether we can keep those aligned. Uh, Stroke patients, about a quarter to half of stroke patients are left with a significant visual field deficit. And there is some promising evidence that you can actually recover some of that uh, visual field deficit with targeted intervention. And then a similar idea for patients that have been through traumatic brain injury. So that's the direction that we're heading in the long term. All that hinges, of course, on our work within Amblyopia and proving out a model for digital therapeutics, not just for us, but, but for the whole field of companies that's emerging. You know, Scott, you talked about the intersection of technology and healthcare, and and that's a bit challenging. Uh, why do you think go-to-market in digital health 
is is challenging in in pharma pharmaceutical yeah it's 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 tricky you have the you have you have in many ways the clash of two very different industries and the culture and the dna within these industries could not be more different you know from the tech world you have a move fast and break things and that's the only way to do it and that's how you build a business right is is speed above everything else in healthcare you have uh this structural inertia that's built into every aspect of healthcare and rightfully so right we're talking about people's health we're talking about medicine we're talking about um some serious safety concerns depending on you know what the product is and and what the indication is so Rightfully so, healthcare is slower. And the intersection of the two, you've got to figure out which industry's rules to play by in a way. And I would say from a team standpoint, it's also challenging because the the Venn diagram, the overlap between people that have deep healthcare experience and people that have true consumer tech or enterprise tech experience that overlap is not very big either, right? So what types of people are you actually hiring and who can provide the right mix of perspectives for you to tackle these challenges? So I would say one of the one of the pitfalls that we've seen a lot in this digital health space is uh, people who come in with a great product, with a great technology, but try to apply a go-to-market strategy from the tech world within healthcare. And I think that more often than not, that doesn't work because healthcare is incredibly complex. You know, you've got thousands of stakeholders that you have to account for, even with a very simple business. And you have to tailor the go-to-market to the space that you're in and the product that you have. Based off that, Scott, what do you think and what do you think has made Luminopia particularly unique in your ability to bring these different stakeholders? To bear. I mean, if you look at your investors, even you know, I've always found it very interesting that you've brought people from the entertainment industry and elsewhere. How have you personally learned from you know these different stakeholders with all of these vast experiences and applied that to not just how you're thinking about go to market for the company, but even your role as CEO? What should the company do next? How do I build this company in a way that is smart and efficient and going to put us on the trajectory that I think is right for everybody involved. But how have you really leaned into that broad expertise in order to to build the organization? Yeah, I think we've been so fortunate to be at the intersection of many different industries because you get to experience things from different perspectives and, and learn from all sorts of different people. So we work a lot, for instance, with some of the leading media companies in the world. So Sesame Street, Nickelodeon, PBS, we have partnerships with these companies to license their content, make it available to patients so that patients can watch SpongeBob or Sesame Street or Wildcrats while going through treatment. And we're actually modifying those images within the headset to achieve a, a therapeutic effect. Um, I, I think it's about what's the standard that we hold ourselves to in different areas of the business. So when we started out, when we were focused on developing the product, one thing we always said to ourselves was this product has to be something kids would want to use, even if it wasn't a treatment. That was the bar that we held ourselves to. And for a media company, 
that's a no-brainer, right? They're not developing treatments. They're developing content to engage kids. And if the content doesn't engage kids, then they're not successful. So that was the standard for us in that world. As we started running clinical trials, and the standard was this has to be a treatment that physicians believe in regardless of the technology, right? Because they're not going to care about the fact that it's VR, that it's cutting edge, that it's using software. They're going to care that it's better than what exists today and it improves vision. And as we think about the process now for actually rolling this out for physicians to prescribe, for patients to get a headset in the mail and to get started, we think a lot about the tech industry. You think about some of the best consumer tech products out there, the iPhone, you don't need an instruction manual for the iPhone, right? You get it in the mail, you open it, you set it up, and everyone can do it. And that's the bar we hold ourselves to when it comes to the prescribing and fulfillment process. It needs to be that simple, right? So I think the benefit of being at the intersection of all these different fields is it's so clear when you're not meeting that standard, right? So then it pushes you to really think about things differently and to not just be beholden to you know, the pharma mold or the tech mold or the, the media world, uh, but to actually take the best parts of all of those and pull it into a single business. Scott, to that point, do you, so do the physicians and ophthalmologists are able to track the adherence of the, the kids are used to the, using the, the limoconia one or how does, how does that work? That's right. Yeah. So right now they have no visibility into how treatment is going. So they don't obviously see compliance with something like an eye patch. They have to wait until patients come back for follow-up visits to get outcomes data. Uh, one of the benefits with our approach is both the parent and the physician can actually see the compliance of the patient. So they can follow along. They can choose say, to bring back a non-compliant patient sooner or maybe they don't have to see the compliant patient back as soon, right? So they can actually tailor their management, their follow-up based on how the patient is doing. And in the future, one of the ideas that we have is to incorporate at-home monitoring of improvement as well. So going not going from compliance where we are now to being able to follow along with improvement, you can imagine a world where treatment can actually be tailored to how the patient is doing, to their baseline characteristics, to their treatment response. Uh, so there's a lot of areas that uh, we can open up once we start tracking improvement as well as compliance. And Scott, I think, I don't want to say last question, but last topic uh, that I, I will say, you know, we could probably spend an hour on just in itself, but coming back to a little bit of where we started that your founding story for the organization, how you came up with the idea, how you decided that you were going to jump in and be a pioneer in the space looking back and now looking to other emerging leaders in the space and what they want to build, what advice would you give somebody who is just starting out or, you know, maybe they're in the industry or in a different industry altogether and really want to work at this intersection or they want to make a move into healthcare or they, they think they have this unmet need that they want to address. What have you learned um, or, or what advice would you give somebody who's considering a similar path? Yeah, I guess first I would say, don't be scared of healthcare. You know, I think a lot of young people these days uh, don't think about going into healthcare because of how complex it is. And it's not getting simpler. It's actually getting more and more complicated as time goes by, right? But I do think that um, when we think about the amazing technological progress that has happened over the last couple of decades, 
um, a lot of the low hanging fruit of that technological innovation has already been captured. And I actually think that the most difficult problems and also the most impactful problems are in these thornier industries that are heavily regulated that take time to build businesses and to get people to adopt new innovations. So when it comes to young people nowadays looking for where they can have the most impact, where they can really run with their career, I would say healthcare and the intersection of healthcare and technology is an ideal place because there's so much we haven't done yet, even with the technology that's commonplace today, to be able to figure out how to really bring that to healthcare. I think we're still in the early days of that. So I would say, don't be scared of healthcare. Once you get into it, once you accumulate the domain knowledge around it, that doesn't go away. And that's hard for other people to get, right? So it actually makes it really, really valuable to become a domain expert in something like healthcare. Yeah, that's, uh, that's I think, is spot on. Uh, what do you think about and how are you thinking about the next, what's next for you and the company? Where, where are you going next? What, what are your thoughts on there? And do you have other studies that are, that are in place in other therapeutic areas or, or what are you thinking? Yeah, so we often talk about two big goals that we have. So the first is how can we take our amblyopia treatment and make it into the new standard of care. And if we're able to do that, it would be hopefully hugely impactful for a lot of patients and families, but also really impactful for this emerging field of digital therapeutics. I would say there isn't a success story that you can point to to say, hey, this technology has been adopted as standard of care. We haven't gotten there yet. So if we're able to do it, we'd be really excited about that. And hopefully we can serve as a model for other companies that are working towards that goal. Beyond that, we're focused on neurovisual conditions. So it's still early days beyond amblyopia, but we've got a lot of ideas on how we can take the technology that we've created within amblyopia and apply it to these other conditions like strabismus, like stroke and vision rehab for those patients. Um, and then also learnings from the commercialization of our amblyopia product. So a lot of the outstanding questions around how do you actually get a digital therapeutic to the patient and how do you ensure engagement and how do you get it reimbursed? We're working on all of these questions within amblyopia, and I'm a firm believer that the more we can learn within amblyopia, the more it's going to help us with these other indications that we're thinking about as well. Are you also thinking of expanding outside of the U.S. as well? Yeah, we're working on that as well. So it's clear to us that there's a, a big market for amblyopia outside of the U.S. Asia is a huge market for anything that affects vision. There's been a lot of interest in myopia research, and there's a lot of comorbidity between myopia and amblyopia. So there's a lot of uh, urgency, I would say, behind that in Asia. We've seen a lot of demand in Europe as well. We were actually at, a, at the annual pediatric ophthalmology meeting about a month ago, and about a third, maybe a quarter of the interest that we got from physicians was actually from ex-US physicians. So there's a lot of interest and in, we're working hard to get it to patients outside the US as soon as we can. That's fantastic. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us all about not just Luminopia, but your personal story and really digging into what it takes to, to innovate in this space. To your point earlier, um, I don't think there's enough of it happening. And you know, we've, we've definitely spent a lot of time in this show uh, meeting with a number of different pioneers in different spaces from 
digital therapeutics and in today's conversation, gene therapy, psychedelics, really people who are trying to break the mold in, in meaningful ways. And I think there's critical learnings from all of these for us to learn what comes next as an industry and, and how we get there. So thank you so much for your insights and for making the time today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. This is great. Pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at SSIStrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review. Thank you.